And thanks for joining us for a series of uh, teachings that I hope will be very powerful in its effect in your life. I'm calling it Living in the Reality of Perfect Sanctification. And uh, what we're trying to do through this series is to travel through God's Word and see exactly how that word sanctification or sanctify or sanctifying is used in the Scripture. You know, the word sanctification in its different forms is a Bible word. And so it's important for us to understand what God has to say about this word. And as we begin and we launch into this uh, topic material, I wanted to bring to you a particular verse from the scripture that's very powerful on the subject of sanctification. In fact, I believe that this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, is probably the most important verse of all when it comes to sanctification and actually some other areas as well. Here's what it says, and it's speaking of God the Father, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, did you catch what that says? First of all, it tells us that it is because of God himself, God the Father, that we are in Christ. I'm not in Christ because of a decision I've made. I'm not in Christ because of a commitment I've made. In fact, it really has nothing at all to do with me. It has everything to do with God. And so God has done it. He's put me in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus himself has become for me and for anyone that is in him wisdom from God. That's the first thing. Secondly, righteousness. Thirdly, sanctification. And fourthly, redemption. In other words, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption are not things. They come from a person. They are the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's real interesting is the reason why this is the case. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 is sandwiched between two key verses. Here's verse 29. It says this, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And here's verse 31, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, did you catch this? You see, this important verse, 1 Corinthians 1.30, is sandwiched between two verses that make the point that it is all for God's glory, not your glory, not my glory. In fact, in verse 29, it says that no flesh should glory in his presence, and flesh speaks of our humanity. I like to say that uh, God is God and we are not And so the reason why I am in Christ, the reason why Christ Jesus is my wisdom and my righteousness and my sanctification and my redemption is that I would not glory in God's presence so that the glorying, the boasting would not be of myself and my performance. The glorying would be in God himself. That's key for us to understand. And the the part of that verse that I want to underline that's applicable to this study is where it says that Christ has been made unto me by God the Father, sanctification. And so at the very beginning, I want to plant this idea in your mind that sanctification isn't something I do. Rather, sanctification is embodied in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our question and consideration should be, Is Jesus complete enough? Is Jesus perfect enough? 
Is there something that I should add to Jesus? So think about that as you consider that very important verse. That's a revolutionary verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Now, as we sort of are in this first segment of the teaching, we're in a bit of an introduction on the subject of living in the reality of perfect sanctification. I need to sort of lay some important grid work, groundwork, so that we understand a few things. And the first thing I want to start is the idea of relying on human wisdom or relying on what could be referred to as carnal wisdom, rather than on relying upon the Word of God to inform us. It's so easy for me to see a promise from the Word of God or see a matter from the Word of God and then go, well, that doesn't seem to be true in my experience, and then push it aside in favor of my own wisdom. And religion is really, when it comes right down to it, it's man's vain attempt to do what God should do. Uh, And religion would tell us that sanctification is a process, implying that there is a part of sanctification that's incomplete. Now, I want to say right at the very beginning that that concept challenges the perfect, finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you're having a bit of a hard time with me saying that right up front, hang with this series. You're going to hear a lot of scripture that's going to back this up and make the point very well. Secondly, religion would tell us that sanctification is a process. In other words, it points to something that we have to do. And whenever that's the case, we're referring to a law principle as opposed to a grace principle. Law is what I do for God in order to get good from God. Grace is God doing good for me, not on the basis of what I do, but on the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, no matter what we're dealing with when it comes to whether it be sanctification or anything else in the Christian life, it is critically important to line up our thinking according to the Word of God and not according to human wisdom. And if you have your Bible, and I want to encourage you to have a Bible that is handy, we're going to be using it quite a bit, I'd like you to turn into the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And as you're traveling to 1 Corinthians 2, remember what was going on with the Corinthian church. I think if there ever has been a church that's a lot like the American church, it would have to be the church in Corinth. These people had all kinds of talent. They had all kinds of ability. They had all kinds of human wisdom. It was quite a place that, well, showcased the greatness of man. And what was the Corinthian church like? They were a mess. There was all kinds of sin going on. There was all kinds of problems with the flesh. There was all kinds of backbiting and infighting and uh, factions and quarreling that was going on. The Corinthian church was a dysfunctional church. And it is to that church that the Apostle Paul is addressing, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Are you there? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 and 14. Here's what he had to say. And and by the way, that Corinthian church, of course, Corinth was in Greece, and the Greeks uh, just uh, were very proud of their philosophy, very proud of human wisdom. Uh, 
and that thinking infected the church as well. He said this, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, that's the man without Christ, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, that's in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 and 14. Now, do you see the contrast right there between, on the one hand, man's wisdom and what man's wisdom teaches and what the Holy Spirit teaches? And then the other comparison is the comparison between spiritual things and spiritual on the one hand and the natural man and natural things on the other. You see, human wisdom, or what I would call carnal wisdom, looks at things according to the flesh and determines spiritual reality according to our flesh experience, rather than relying upon the Spirit through the authority of the Word of God. You see, human wisdom has a problem in that it is experience-based wisdom. It is carnal. It is of the flesh. And ultimately, that kind of wisdom is not from God, it's demonic. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You see, human wisdom is, is man saying to God in essence, I, I know what you've said, God, but it doesn't seem logical to me. It doesn't seem right. My experience doesn't line up with what you have to say. That's foolish. And human wisdom contradicts the word of God. I call such wisdom, human wisdom, flesh wisdom, carnal theology. And I, and I want to say, and I want to say this uh, as directly as I can, and I know it will offend at the beginning. My intention is not to hurt unnecessarily, but we have to call the spades a spade. We, we have to call black, black. Most of the teaching today on the subject of sanctification in the church, at least the American church, is based on human wisdom that is experience-based and carnal, and not upon what the pure Word of God has to say about, about the subject of sanctification. Now, whatever you've been taught about sanctification, I'm going to ask you to just lay it down for a while as we consider through this study and receive from the word, I'd like you to receive from the word as you've never heard, as if you've never heard the word sanctification before. Just take whatever it is that you've learned and just at least temporarily, I want you just to put it on the shelf and forget about it. And I want you to consider the pure word of God and what the word has to say on the subject of sanctification. Now, I have definitely reached some conclusions here. And the way that I have reached my conclusions is I have gone through the New Testament and looked at the, the word sanctify, sanctify or sanctification. First of all, the New Testament of course, the underlying original language is Greek. The words sanctify, sanctification, holy, and holiness are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. I have also gone through in the New Testament and looked at all of those occasions, particularly where the word sanctification or one of its forms, sanctify, sanctifying, comes up, and tried to see how is this thing used. On what basis is this being referenced? What is it talking about? 
And the first thing that I noticed is that sanctification, like justification, is similar in that it is all God, it is all by grace, it is by faith in Christ, it is already done, it's all yours now, so enjoy it. One of the biggest carnal theologies is the idea that sanctification is both a, an initial experience and a progressive state. And this concept has been seen in, in several different documents here. Uh, this comes from the Tyndale Bible Dictionary. Uh, they cite the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833 on the subject of sanctification. And it says this, We believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness. That it is a progressive work, that it is begun in regeneration, and it is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter, in the continual use of the appointed means, especially the word of God, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. So that's the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833. Probably the one definition that has affected the church more is the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1647. Now, let me say up front that I have a lot of respect for the Westminster uh, Standards, the Westminster Confession of State uh, Faith. There are many, many things within that catechism, within that body of doctrine that I feel are very biblical. However, the Westminster Confession is not infallible. Therefore, we must evaluate even the Westminster Confession of Faith in the light of God's Word. And we have to reject those parts that contradict with the Word of God, just like anything else. Well, here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith has to state about the subject of sanctification. This is in section 2. It says, This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And then in section three, it says, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The only part about that statement that I agree with in section two is the first part where it says that this sanctification is throughout the whole man. That's true. I agree with that. The rest, I can't, I cannot more vehemently disagree with. And that is repeating again, that it's imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. This has become the de facto teaching of sanctification ever since. First of all, you will find nowhere in the Bible that there is any sort of internal war within the believer. It doesn't exist. I know what you're going to say. Romans chapter 7. We will come back to Romans chapter 7 later on. Romans chapter 7, in brief, to kind of answer the immediate concern, is dealing with the problem of law. 
At the beginning of Romans 7, it makes the point that the Christian has died in Christ, with Christ, to the law. The problem in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 24, is a Christian who is trying to live the Christian life by the law, by their flesh, and therefore failing. And at the end of the matter, he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? It says, praise God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not without an answer. And what's interesting is that there are a lot of Christians who end the teaching of the whole subject of the victorious Christian life with Romans 7, 24a that says, O wretched man that I am. And they stop. But see, the teaching continues on to the answer in 724b. It says, thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then you get into uh, and then you get into Romans chapter 8, verse 2, that says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's in the past tense. What part of that don't we understand? And then we get down through this glorious chapter in Romans chapter 8. Here we get down to uh, the latter part of that chapter, and it says, Yet, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. Did you catch it? More than conquerors. You know, it's one thing to win. That's a nice thing to win. You can win with by one point, and you're, you're a winner. Or you can win and, and absolutely trounce the other side with a huge score. And then you'd be a real big winner. Now think of the term conqueror. When I think of a conqueror, I think of a general who's defeated the enemy army. And he has conquered them. And, and all that that enemy army has is in subjection to the conquering general. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, not that we're winners, not that we're even conquerors. It says that we are more than conquerors. My dear friend, this is an example about how we rely on things like the confessions of faith established by men. And we rely on that as the de facto standard and ignore the clear teaching of what the Word of God says. My dear friend, the devil wars against what the Bible teaches about sanctification. He doesn't want Christians to know about what the Bible teaches on the subject of sanctification. At different times in the history of the church, God has shown his people what real sanctification is. And for a while, they live in the glory of it, that sanctification, like everything else in the Christian life, is all God. It's all by grace. It's all through faith in Christ. It is already done. It's all yours now, so enjoy it. And the devil works triple overtime to get these people who catch a glimpse of the reality of sanctification taught biblically to lose sight of this. And one of the best ways that the devil uses is to put pressure on those who understand what real sanctification is. We tend to shrink back from statements that say that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We tend to shrink back from uh, statements like uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 2, that says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And we can buckle down and water down because other people are saying, look, you really should tone that teaching down. Or they'll say, you're out of balance. Or don't get an error on this. Or they'll say, well, you know, most 
Bible-believing Christians don't see it that way. Or someone might say, well, who do you think you are? You know what? Who do we think any of us are in and of ourselves? If a person comes to me with their Bible open, I don't care if they're king or pauper, prince or pauper. They have brought forth the royal word of God, and that has, be, has to be given priority. We can't allow ourselves to be intimidated away from the glorious promise of what the Scripture says in so many things about the Christian life, including sanctification. In Jude 3, he says, I will contend for the faith once delivered. He says, I exhort you to contend for the faith once delivered. Now, the idea of contending is rising up against something. It's pushing through the odds. I know for myself personally, there are things where I've been challenged in my thinking about the subject of sanctification and my objection to the clear teaching about the perfection of sanctification in Christ already given usually happens because I'll think, well, I'm not really seeing that in my experience. Or I'll think, well, so-and-so respectable Bible teacher doesn't teach that. That's flesh, my flesh, or relying on someone else's flesh understanding. The devil's goal in all of this stuff is to get us to think, as it is in so many other things about our Christian life, that sanctification is somehow incomplete, that sanctification is something that has yet to be done, or as the Westminster Confession of Faith seems to put it, that, that we can never really have it, that it's so-called imperfect in this life. So the point I'm trying to make here is it's extremely important that we carefully look at what the Bible says on the subject of sanctification. The word sanctification is a Bible word, and the Bible uses it very precisely and very exactly, and we need to be faithful and track with how the Bible teaches on the subject. Okay, so what is sanctification? Well, biblically, sanctification is God. I'm going to stop right there. That's significant. Sanctification is, it is God himself. God. Not you. God setting apart someone or something for himself and his holy purposes. In fact, the biblical concept of sanctification and even holiness in the Bible refers to this idea of being separated, of being set apart. In fact, holiness relative to God, and of course God is perfectly holy, uh, refers to the fact that he is completely other. God is not mixed somehow with his creation. He is distinct he is transcendent. He is God. This is unlike those uh, with the Eastern religions uh, that make God out to be uh, this everything. In other words, I'm looking at a tree right now at the window. That tree is God. Or we might say this person is God. And so in the Eastern mindset, which is untrue, they would equate the creation with the creator. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is distinctly God. And so when I look at his creation, I see that tree over there. That is not God. 
That is the tree. It is the creation that the creator made. I am a creature. I am not the creator. And so this is God in his holiness, ground zero. God is distinctly God. He is distinctly transcendent. He is separate from us. And it is God himself that determines what is holy and what is not holy. Biblically, God speaks, and it is so. He declares something or someone or someplace to be holy. Remember what happened in uh, Exodus chapter 3 out in the desert, the Midian desert? Moses is out there. He sees the burning bush, and then he goes up. He's wondering what's going on. Why is this bush burning and it's not being consumed? And the Lord says to him, Moses, take your sandals off for the ground you stand on is holy ground. Now, was that ground holy because those grains of sand cleaned themselves up? Or did someone come by and clean them and make them holy? No. God himself in his mind designated that place in all of the earth for a divine meeting with his appointed servant, Moses. God had selected that place. He had set it apart for his purpose. That's the core idea of what is holiness, what is sanctification. And the other idea behind holiness and sanctification is that once it is done, once God has so spoken and done it, it cannot be undone. It means that that thing or that person or even that place belongs to the Lord. You know, it's like everything else in our Christian life. We have it already, we have it totally, and we have sanctification perfectly. Um, Ephesians 1.3 says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Do you know that uh, sanctification is one of those spiritual blessings? It says we're blessed with it already. It's important for us to understand that what the Word informs us about the reality of something according to God, we are to walk according to what the Word says, in the truth of what the Word says, by faith. Our walk is a faith walk according to who we really are in Christ. Real sanctification is who we really are in Christ. Remember what I first brought up when I began the teaching, this segment, 1 Corinthians 1.30, that says, Of God are you in Christ, who has been made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is not what I'm becoming. Real sanctification is who I really am in Christ. Christ is my sanctification. And so I'm called to walk according to who I really am. And this kind of gets into the crux of the problem that we have with the contemporary teaching on the subject of sanctification. Much of the teaching gears right alongside with what the, what the Westminster Confession of Faith had to say. When the Westminster Confession of Faith first said that it's imperfect in this life, that's wrong. It is perfect because Christ is perfect. It says that there abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part. Oh, really? Where is that in the Bible? Speaking of a, of a Christian, what about 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then it goes on to say that there is a continual and irreconcilable war. Where do you get that from? We kind of debunked that already. 
putting Romans 7 in its proper context. And then it says the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's uh, Galatians 5.17, but Galatians 5.16 says to walk by the spirit and you will, not, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Do you see the problem here is that the modern definition of, the, of, of what a Christian really is, is that a Christian is this imperfect uh, creation. Now, when I say I'm not meaning perfect vis-a-vis God, you know, God is only God. But there's this idea as if there, there is something that's still bad within us. And then the Westminster Confession actually says there's something that's bad all over within us to a certain degree. And you'll see as we go through this thing how much uh, that is not, that's an unbiblical thought. So their real sanctification is who we really are. Remember, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Of God are you in Christ, and Christ himself, who is perfect, who is complete, has become my sanctification. There are two aspects of, of sanctification. Uh, a lot of people recognize that there is this aspect of uh, sanctification already accomplished. But then they go on to say that, well, sanctification is a process. Again, we don't find that in the Bible. What we do find in the Bible is that other aspect is walking according to who we really are, walking according and in the perfect sanctification, which is Christ. Christ Jesus is our sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1.30. I know that as I'm teaching these things, there's going to be sort of a bit of a kickback. And I want to assure you that I'm going to thoroughly rigorously go through the Word of God to show and prove repeatedly what the Word of God says about our sanctification. So if you're feeling that uneasiness, I don't blame you, but rest assured, I hope you're going to be a good Berean, and I hope that we'll look to the Word of God for what it has to say. Let's uh, look at a couple of interesting aspects of sanctification you might not have considered. For instance, as we look in the Bible and how the idea of sanctification comes up, the idea of sanctification is actually directed at times toward things. And I like to refer to the incident in Numbers 16. I call it the holy censors of the fried priests of Korah. You can read about this on your own again in Numbers 16, but essentially Korah was a priest who led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And uh, there was a showdown. Basically, Moses said, okay, we'll show up before the Lord and we'll see who stands. Well, needless to say, the rebellious priests of Korah and Korah did not stand. They were incinerated on the spot. What was left of them was the censers that they held in their hand. Now, these censers are things in which incense would be burned in the matter of the ceremonial uh, activity about the tabernacle. The censers which were made of gold, remained, and metal. And so God had directed Moses and Aaron, actually Aaron, to take those censers and to hammer them on the altar of the Lord because they were holy as unto the Lord. So we see a very dramatic incidence in which the censers of even the priests of Korah, you know, they were being misused in a rebellion. They were still considered holy unto the Lord, not because of who held them and who failed with them, but because of the one who designated them as being holy and sanctified, God himself. 
There's also the sanctification of a gift on the altar, sanctified on the altar, which itself is sanctified. That's in Matthew 23, 19. Other interesting aspects of sanctification you might not have considered. Sanctification is seen biblically of God himself and of Christ. Ezekiel 38, verse 23, the Lord is saying, Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, there is an aspect in the contemporary definition of sanctification that is wrong. It's this idea of getting cleaned up, of being made holy. That's not true. Biblical sanctification refers to the setting apart of something onto God. It's not a gradual setting apart in a process. It is a distinct action. One moment, it is not God's. It's in common profane use in the next moment. God has claimed it for himself. And God himself is saying of himself, I will sanctify myself. Wait a minute. If we use the modern definition of sanctified, that means that God has to clean himself up from some sin. That's not true. Maybe it needs something else. That's right. God is saying, I will magnify myself. I will sanctify myself. In other words, I will lift myself up as being distinctly God and distinctly holy. So we see a fascinating instance of God himself sanctifying himself for a purpose. Then in John 10, 36, uh, it says that Jesus, uh, the Father sanctified Jesus and sent him into the world. Was Jesus dirty? Was he unclean in some sense? God forbid. No, he wasn't. But God the Father had a purpose in setting apart his son for his purposes. What? To be sent into the world as the Savior. And then in John 17, 19, Jesus sanctifies himself. He says, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, is Jesus sanctifying himself because he's dirty, he's unclean, he's got sins he needs to get rid of? No. He sanctifies himself, setting himself apart for a holy purpose. In this case, that others would be sanctified, set apart for God by the truth. You know, it is interesting. I hope you think about that. Why would Jesus need to be sanctifi- sanctified if sanctification is about getting rid of sin? This proves that sanctification means being set apart for God and his purposes. Here's an interesting one. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Some of your versions might say set apart the Lord God, but it's based on the same Greek word, sanctify. Wait a minute. Are we saying that God is somehow unclean, incomplete, and therefore we have to clean him up and straighten him out, get rid of the sin? No. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts means in your hearts, set him apart as who he is, Lord God. And be ready to give a defense. A very important principle when studying the occasions of the word sanctification as it's used in the Bible to understand is that sanctification is something that is done to us. 
It is not something we do to ourselves. There are multitudes of verses that speak of people and things being sanctified. Now, we're going to get a little bit technical here in terms of grammar. Hopefully, you'll remember your grammar that you learned in high school, right? Do you remember what the passive tense is? In English, the order of a good sentence is oriented subject, verb, object. There is a subject that is performing the verb on the object. So the object is receiving the action of the subject. And when it comes to sanctification, overwhelming numbers of verses speak of people and things being sanctified. That's the passive tense, meaning an action being done to, not by, the object. And again, this is in the Bible. And we're going to get through an awful lot of verses that make this point. There's a lot of scripture that's coming up. I want to conclude this teaching, which is our introduction in our series called Living in the Reality of Perfect Sanctification, speaking about God's funny glasses. You know, we there are so many statements that are in the Bible that speak of uh, our condition in Christ being already done. And uh, there are many times in which our already done reality, in Christ reality, is sort of fudged in the church today. You know, um, for instance, let me go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 2. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Or we might hear the phrase, God sees us as righteous in Christ. And the way it kind of comes off is something less than real. In other words, well, I'm really not righteous. I'm really not holy. I'm really not sanctified because you ought to see the sin that's in my life. But God has these sort of funny glasses um, that, that sees me different, you know, even though I really am not that way. Yet, dear friend, there are clear statements that speak of who we really are in Christ. For instance, Romans 8, 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Romans 8, 9. Listen to this. Romans chapter 10, verse 39 says, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And the verses right up to it, you know, seem to be scary verses that say that if you draw back, the Lord says, my soul will not have pleasure in in them. But then verse 39 is a strong, definitive declaration that says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition. We are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Ephesians 1.3 is a great example of this. It declares that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's spoken in the past tense. When did you get every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ? It's already happened when you were brought into Christ, when you were first born again. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a great example. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 used to bug me, (laughs) used to bother me. I know the Bible has it, and I even had it memorized. But I would look at myself and go, well, 
that doesn't seem to be true. There's a lot of old things that I'm seeing. How can 2 Corinthians 5.17 say that all things have passed away? You see, what I was doing was I was judging the truth of God's word and watering it down and changing it according to my miserable experience. That's sad. Well, maybe a person isn't rejecting those verses, but they're kind of thinking, well, those statements are, are positional truths. You know, many times these truths, these realities of who we really are right now are presented as so-called positional truths. First of all, the term positional truth is nowhere used in the Bible. It is a contrivance of man. And um, people tend to think, well, yeah, that's your position in Christ, and but you're really not that way yet, at least not yet. But it's the way that God looks at you, you know. He, he somehow sees things differently. You know, it's kind of like God is looking through some sort of funny glasses. Uh, my family went to see a, a movie recently that was done in 3D, and they came home with these funny-looking 3D movie glasses. Now, what they did when they put on these 3D glasses was they were looking at an image that was two-dimensional on a two-dimensional surface, and it looked like it was three-dimensional. And as long as they wore those funny glasses, the two-dimensional image looked three-dimensional. And I think that at least subconsciously, we can feel that way about our reality and the realities of who we really are in Christ. We may think that uh, the fact of the matter is, well, I really am not that way, but God sees me that way in Christ. But that's not the way it's presented in the Word of God. God isn't wearing funny glasses. He did an amazing work of salvation. He did an amazing work that is unbelievable. And the more we realize the reality of what he did when we were born again, and we were baptized into Christ and made one with him, the more we realize who we really are and who he really is in us. Let me lay on you one more incredible verse, and it has a direct application to sanctification. Uh, this is over in Hebrews chapter 10, and the theme of the book of Hebrews is the perfection of Jesus as the high priest, as the sacrifice, his perfection of his life and his blood. And because of that, we have a solid relationship with God that is through the new covenant. And so in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, we see the reality of the complete, perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews 10, 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus comes. Jesus says that. And it says he takes away the first, referring to the old covenant of law, that he may establish the second, the new covenant of grace. Now listen to this, verse 10, by that will, what will? Christ's will, Christ coming in to the Father and saying perfectly, I will do your will, O God. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Did you hear that? By that will, the perfection of Jesus Christ, the perfection of his perfect life for 33 years, the perfection of his sacrifice on Calvary, his perfect death, 
his perfect doing the will of God all the time, 100% of the time from the heart, when he came and said, Father, I am coming to do your will. It is by that determinative action, it says we have been sanctified. You cannot twist that verse in any way, shape, or form to mean anything except that it has been done. And it says, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. That last phraseology, once for all, the Greek word means a perfect action that is done so completely at one point in time in the past that it doesn't have to be repeated again. The benefit of that perfect action is for forever. So how have you been sanctified? through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And does that body have to be offered again and again and again? No. So Hebrews 10.10 speaks of the completeness and the perfection of your sanctification. Well, my friend, we're going to get into this a whole lot more in our next uh, edition of this teaching series, Living in the Reality of Perfect Sanctification. We're going to be talking about perfect sanctification already accomplished. You're going to be blessed. So I encourage you to keep tuned to these podcasts, download them, listen to them, get your Bible out, search the matter for yourself, and you will see the glorious reality that Christ is our perfect sanctification. And I have him now. He has me now. Let's take a moment and pray. Dear Father, These truths are so wonderful, and we thank you, Lord, that you deserve the glory. Father, I think of what it says in Romans 8.32 that says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also together with him give us all things? Thank you, Father, that you gave your perfect son, Jesus. He came in a perfect conception, a perfect birth, and perfect life for 33 years, Lord. He walked it out perfectly. He did your will, Father. He never failed once. And then, Lord, he took the stripes upon his back. He was wounded for our transgressions, and by his injury, we have been healed. And then, Lord, he obeyed you even to the cross, even the point of death on the cross. He yielded to you, Father. And Lord, when he did the perfect living and the perfect bleeding and the perfect dying and the perfect sacrifice, Lord, we live in the perfect reality of all that is in him. And Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, open our eyes, open our understanding that we may see this truth deeply and profoundly, that it would change our lives. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.